Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, oh man. ISBs should be <laughs> utilities, not Griner. Close enough. On today's episode, we are reaching back into the archives of the 443 to bring up a topic that we discussed quite a few years ago, and that is Section 230. Uh, we're going to play the old episode for you in its entirety, discussing what Section 230 is, what it means for the internet, and then we will end with some updates to it, thanks to recent Supreme Court activity targeting it. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and roll the archive footage on it. Wait, there's no footage, just sound. Oh, yeah. Sorry, YouTube. <laughs> You'll have to watch a black circuit board while you listen to this. Maybe we can have some fun animation. So this week, we can talk about Title 47 of the U.S. Code, Section 230, which is more commonly known as just Section 230 or the Safe Harbor Provisions. Now, this is something that we've mentioned a few times over the last month, but really something that deserves a lot more attention, which is why we're devoting this entire podcast to me just basically monologuing on why this is so important. So sit down and button up. This is really a relatively small piece of law from the early stages of the internet, but it's become one of the most important tools for protecting freedoms and innovation on the web. Now, the most important piece of this law is a single sentence. It says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. That's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo, but in even simpler terms, this just means that intermediaries on the internet, ranging from internet service providers to websites that publish third-party content, are shielded from liability for what other people say on their platforms. This law also protects the same intermediaries from liability for moderating their content on their platforms, even if the content is constitutionally protected, which is really interesting about this law. But these provisions, they allow websites to leave up comment sections without fear of being sued for what their users say. They allow hosting platforms like YouTube to accept 500 hours of video per minute without fear of being shut down if they miss moderation on one video that contains illegal content. They allow social media sites like Reddit to host discussions and endless memes while moderating hate speech and violence. But Section 230 is what really enables the internet to be the free and open platform that it is today. And without Section 230, as it stands it, and as it's currently understood by law, Websites would have to choose between heavily censoring their user content or simply not allowing any user content at all. And I know that like the first rule of the internet is don't read the comment section, but the internet would be so much different if there was no comment section anywhere and we were not allowed to actively participate on these sites. So even though Section 230 ended up as this bulwark for free speech, the Communications Decency Act as a whole was actually originally designed to restrict free speech on the internet. But before we get into that, let's go through how this law first came to be. And to start, we have to go all the way back to the early 1990s, where the world was really still trying to figure out exactly how to handle the internet. In the United States, 
liability for printed material has uh, was really well established by that time with a law a line drawn between publishers and distributors. So publishers should be expected to have some sort of awareness of the material that they were publishing and thus should be held liable for illegal content that they publish. Distributors, on the other hand, would not typically be aware of the content of the publications they were distributing, and thus they should be protected from liability. So, for example, if I publish a book or a magazine full of just blatantly and maliciously false information about a person, I, as the publisher, could be sued for libel. But if I owned a bookstore that carried that book or magazine, I shouldn't be held responsible for that specific book or magazine's contents. You can imagine the undue burden that would be placed on something like Barnes & Noble or just the neighborhood magazine stand if they suddenly had to police the content of every single piece of printed material that they had on their shelves. Now, in the early 1990s, internet service providers and content platforms were taking a few different approaches when it came to user-generated content on their platforms. Uh, there's two such examples for this, uh, two really big ones that really defined how this law came to be. The first being CompuServe, which took the approach of just not regulating user content at all. They allowed anything and everything to go through their service without any moderation whatsoever. On the other side of that, Prodigy actually employed a team of moderators to remove what they determined to be offensive, obscene, or illegal content. Now, both of these companies ended up being sued for content that was left up on their platforms, and these two cases came to be cornerstone cases for laws on the internet. The first one, which was Cubby Inc. versus CompuServe Inc. Uh, CompuServe was found to be not at fault for the libelous uh, content that was on their platform because they chose to let all content go unmoderated. And because of that, they were determined to be a distributor and thus not liable for any content posted by their users. But in the other case, which was Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy Services Company, Prodigy was determined to have taken an editorial role in regards to their users' content, which made them a publisher and thus liable. And you can imagine the effect that this had on the internet at the time. Because of these rulings, specifically the Stratton Oakmont one, Service providers and content platforms were now really incentivized to just stop all moderation, period, and allow any and all content through their pipes and on their pages. It was basically, as described by a few representatives and senators at the time, the wild, wild west. Maybe just the wild west. Maybe not the, Mil the Will Smith movie. But anyways, in 1996, Congress was actually working on the Telecommunications Act, which ended up being the first significant legislation regarding telecommunications in over 60 years. And at the time, the Senate had already passed a version of the Communications Decency Act, which was designed to criminalize knowingly sending obscene material to minors, which is effectively codifying that Stratton-Oakmont decision. Now, the tech industry realized that this law would be extremely challenging for them since they would effectively be treated as publishers in the context of the First Amendment unless they took a completely hands-off approach and acted solely as distributors, basically giving them uh, the option to deny that they had any idea what was, what was going through their services and thus make them not liable to these new provisions. Now, two U.S. representatives at the time, Christopher Cox, who was a Republican from California, 
and Ron Wyden, who was a Democrat from Oregon, heard the pleas and wrote the House Bill Section 503, which was titled the Internet Freedom and Family Empowerment Act, which was designed specifically to override the Stratton-Oakmont decision. Now, Wyden and Cox added these provisions so that service providers could choose to moderate their content, including offensive material, instead of having to act completely as a neutral delivery service. And by allowing them to do that, they wouldn't be held liable for anything that was left up. In February 1996, the Telecommunications Act, including both the Senate's uh, Communications Decency Act and the Cox-Wyden provisions, passed both houses unanimously before being signed by Bill Clinton, and the Cox-Wyden provisions were codified as Section 230 and Title 47 of the U.S. Code. Now, the very same day that the Telecommunications Act of 96 passed, the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, filed a legal challenge for a temporary restraining order for the Communication Decency Act's uh, anti-indecency provisions. So those ones that required organizations to prevent obscene material from making its way to uh, children's eyes. Now, this case eventually made it to the Supreme Court, who ruled in a 9-0 to decision, so unanimously, that the anti-indecency sections of the Communications Decency Act violated First Amendment protections for free speech and struck them down. In their decision, uh, Justice Stevens wrote, quote, We are persuaded that the CDA lacks the precision that the First Amendment requires when a statute regulates the content of speech. In order to deny minors access to potentially harmful speech, the CDA effectively suppresses a large amount of speech that adults have a constitutional right to receive and to address to one another. That burden on adult speech is unacceptable, and if restrictive alternatives would be at least as effective in achieving the legitimate purpose that the statute was enacted to serve. It is true that we have repeatedly recognized the governmental interest in protecting children from harmful materials, but that interest does not justify an unnecessarily broad suppression of speech addressed to adults. As we have explained, the government may not reduce the adult population to only what is fit for children. Now, they struck down the anti-indecency portions of the Computer Decency Act, but section the provisions that ultimately became Section 230 uh, ended up surviving. Like in their statement, uh, the Justice Department also said, through the use of chat rooms, any person with a phone line can become their own town crier with a voice that resonates further than it could from any soapbox. Through the use of web pages, mail exploders, and news groups, the same individual can become a pamphleteer. Uh, I don't know what the heck a mail exploder is. Maybe we'll have to ask Pop Pop Corey that on the next episode. But you can see what they're trying to say here. And that's this one specific section, what ended up becoming Section 230, is important for protecting free speech, while the other ones are limiting free speech in violation of the First Amendment. Now, Section 230 isn't really the blanket immunity for service providers that, uh, even though it originally was for really much, much of the first decade of its existence. For example, one of the first major victories against it involved the, the website roommates.com, 
uh, which was a platform for matching renters based off of profiles that they create on the website. Now, roommates.com required users to fill out a questionnaire, which included information about their gender, race, and preferred roommate's race. You can see where this might be going. The Fair Housing Council of San Fernando Valley felt that these requirements created a discrimination and violation of the Fair Housing Act and sued Roommates.com to hold them liable. In this case, eventually ruled against Roommates.com, stating that their required profile system made them a content provider and thus ineligible for Section 230 protections. And that's not the only caveat to Section 230. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998, or DMCA as you probably know it as, also removed Section 230 protections in regards to hosting copyrighted material. And then even more recently, the FOSTA and SESTA bills of 2017 removed Section 230 immunity for services that knowingly support or facilitate sex trafficking. And even though this is seemingly a good idea, it's still pretty controversial. Uh, Because those bills don't distinguish between consensual legal sex offerings and non-consensual ones, it's it's potentially harmful for the safety of sex workers who chose to use online platforms for offering and discussing their services as opposed to alternatives like street prostitution. Section 230 is still really powerful, though, and quite unique. Like the vast majority of other countries on this planet do not have similar laws in their books. Canada, Japan, most of the European Union don't have something similar to Section 230 and their safe harbor laws. This makes the United States a safe haven for websites that want to provide a platform for free expression and or controversial or political content that might be shut down in other nations. And because of this, Most major online services are based in the United States to benefit from this safe haven. Now, fast forward to 2020, and Section 230 is unfortunately under major attack from all sides. Many Democrats don't like it uh, because they feel like service providers aren't doing enough to moderate hateful or obscene material. Republicans, on the other hand, think that the service providers are moderating too much when it comes to making judgments about what content violates their terms of services. Even Wyden himself, one of the original authors of these provisions, who is now a senator, has been very vocal about his disappointment with its application. So last year, he actually had an interview with the New York Times, where he said, There were two parts to the law. There was a shield and there was a sword. The sword was the legal authority of the website owner, to moderate content. And it's clear to me, looking at the evolution of time, that too many sites, particularly the big companies, uh, as they get so prosperous, enjoyed the shield, but weren't willing to use the sword. Now I've told them that if they don't clean up their act and use their authority to moderate content with the sword, then people are going to constantly come after them and say, we're going to take your shield. Now, Wyden is joined by other Democrats, too, who have indicated that they would be in favor of changing Section 230 to make tech companies liable for hate speech publicized on their platforms. In fact, one of the representatives, uh, Beto O'Rourke, who had a uh, presidential campaign in 2020, made one of his campaign promises, including uh, include sweeping changes to Section 230 
to make platforms liable if they aren't proactive about taking down hate speech. There's current the current presidential candidate uh, for the Democratic side, Joe Biden, has also indicated that he'd like to weaken or otherwise revoke Section 230 protections for big tech companies uh, like Facebook. And then on the other side of the aisle, you've got Republican Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Halway, who have been arguing that Section 230 protections should only apply to providers that are politically neutral. They've accused major social networks like Twitter of displaying bias against conservatives uh, after they've begun ramping up recently on moderation of content that they've deemed factually incorrect or instigating violence. Hawley's even introduced a bill that would task the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, with certifying tech companies uh, and certifying them that they are approaching moderation in a politically neutral way, specifically applying to companies with over 30 million active users in the U.S., 300 million users global, or $500 million in global revenue. So think the big social media sites like Facebook or Twitter or Reddit. This certification would come in the form of a vote every two years by the five FTC commissioners and would require a supermajority, meaning four of the five commissioners, to vote in favor of certification. And any tech company that failed certification would lose Section 230 protections and would be subject to liability litigation. And now, whether or not you're against Holly's bill or holding these big tech companies liable for hate speech or political uh, non-neutrality, you have to admit that there's some concern with giving the ability of two of five members of a commission uh, the ability to control a decision on whether or not a platform is politically neutral or not. That's way too much power for two people. If they say no, then that certification fails. Now, Holly's bill isn't even the most egregious or immediate threat to Section 230. In March of this year, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, along with bipartisan co-sponsors, introduced the EARNIT Act, which you've heard us talk about a few times on this podcast already. Uh, EARNIT stands for Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Internet Technologies Act of 2020. And its summary states that its intention is to establish a national commission on online child sexual exploitation prevention, which may develop recommended best practices that service providers may follow or choose to implement to prevent, reduce, and respond to the online sexual exploitation of children. And honestly, like in its summary, this sounds like a great idea. There's no sane person on this planet that could argue against limiting the the ability for horrible people to exploit children. But as with most legislation these days, the title and the advertised subject is really designed to gain support while distracting from concerning provisions inside the bill that most people don't actually read. So like I said a second ago, the summary of the bill says that service providers may choose to implement the best practices that the committee comes up with, but in reality, the bill explicitly amends Section 230 to further revoke safe harbor protections unless, quote, an officer of the provider has elected to certify to the Attorney General under Section 4D of the Earn it Act that the provider has implemented and is in compliance with the child sexual exploitation prevention best practices. So effectively, this means 
that yes, the best practices are optional, but if you don't actively elect to follow them, you no longer qualify for Section 230 protections. And now you might say, what if the best practices are actually good, really best practices? And the committee is actually set up in a way, or at least defined by the law, that some of the membership requirements might actually lead to good best practices being considered. But unfortunately, the attorney general gets to approve or deny those requirements. And this gives a single person a massive amount of power to shape the direction of those requirements too. And to give you an example of why this is a concern, Attorney General of the United States, Mr. William Barr, has been very vocal about his desires to introduce encryption backdoors and circumventions for end-to-end encrypted messaging services. And he's already laying the groundwork for saying, I won't accept any best practice recommendations that don't include requirements for law enforcement to access encrypted communications uh, to protect the children. And you've heard Corey and I talk very vocally about anti-encryption laws on this podcast many times because it's something we're really passionate about. They're always disguised as a way to combat terrorism or the exploitation of children, but they're like trying to dig a hole in your backyard with a nuclear bomb. Like The collateral damage is just far too high for this specific tool. And further stripping Section 230 protections or requiring encryption backdoors will not do anything to combat terrorism or child exploitation. Criminals will simply shift to another platform that doesn't fall under the United States jurisdiction. And in the meantime, it's the everyday citizen that will be swallowed up by this blast. A small group of individuals will be able to control and silence platforms for free speech and political dissent. Citizens' web privacy will be stripped away. And companies will have to choose between extreme financial and technological burdens of compliance or simply just shuttering their doors because it's not worth the effort. Now, I've talked a lot about my opinions on Section 230 on this, and I will say that it's not perfect. Like, there are still some genuine concerns with defendants using Section 230 to dismiss cases before the discovery stage could prove that they themselves were the ones generating the illegal content. But the protections that it provides are just far too important to strip away. And a free and important and a free and open internet is reliant on the United States leadership and these safe harbor protections. So if you're a US citizen, this is absolutely an issue worth contacting your representatives for. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org, has an action center page with really easy instructions and a tool for finding and contacting your representatives and your senators. And obviously, while a phone call is a lot more impactful, even just filling out one of the little templated this matters to me emails and firing it off to all of your reps is way better than nothing. And if you're not a U.S. citizen, now is the time to demand legislative protections similar to Section 230 within your own country. Because if the safe harbor in the United States closes, we need a backup option to take over the stewardship of one of our most important resources, the internet. This isn't the last time you're going to hear us talk about Section 230. I also want to recommend donating to or working with the EFF. If you're a developer, they're always looking for people to help out with their tools. And if you just have a couple extra bucks to spare, they do a lot of work towards protecting organizations and uh, individuals and keeping the internet free and open. Like they've been around since 1990, and all they've done is try and protect the free and open internet. Uh, Please, please, please 
reach out to your elected officials and let them know that Section 230 and similar laws are important to you. Thank you. So we just finished replaying that episode, uh, which I think the topic in there is at least timeless, gave you a good overview of exactly what Section 230 is, how it protects websites and make sure that they can do effectively best effort moderation without exposing themselves to liability for content that they don't want to remove or fail to remove or accidentally fail to remove from their platform. Uh, unfortunately, Section 230 has been challenged several times over the past few years. So if you remember a couple of years ago, former president wanted to strike it down after he was banned from Twitter or threatened to be banned from Twitter. Uh, but now there are several with one very prominent case making their way through the courts with this big one currently on the desk of the Supreme Court. Just this last couple of weeks, they started hearing uh, testimony, for, not testimony, comments from both the plaintiffs and defendants in it uh, with the goals of challenging effectively how Section 230 works and potentially breaking the entirety of this law. Yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, you can see both sides to things like uh, when Web 2.0 came and users can put content on websites. I mean, this is really what is around. The companies that want to provide uh, any sort of site that allows users to post things don't want to be liable for their users on the flip side. This is interesting. I, I will we'll let you get into it, but it's interesting how Letting users post stuff, even if the user posts stuff, things on your site might contributing to highlighting the stuff that's being posted. And uh, like just real quick recap in case someone skipped over the old episode and jumped straight to this. Like Section 230, an extremely high level, basically it's prior to the existence of this law, uh, a website that had user uploaded content had to either fully moderate all hateful content, all illegal content off of the site or face liability, or do zero moderation and be effectively just the transmitter of this data, kind of like a, a publisher or whatever. Um, Section 230 allows them to at least do like their best effort for moderation. Like they have to, if they're notified about illegal content, take it down. But if they fail to find some proactively, it's not going to leave them specifically liable to being sued uh, because of that content that users upload to the platform. Uh, so the big case that is currently in the Supreme Court, which by the time you're listening to this, will probably be very close to having some form of a comment or a response from the Supreme Court on, uh, it's called Gonzalez versus Google. And it actually has a really interesting take on how it's challenging Section 230. And it's basically focused around the algorithms and recommendation engines that the bulk of social media and um, honestly, almost every website we visit uses in some form or fashion. Uh, so the case comes from a family of an American that was unfortunately killed in the 2015 terrorist attack in Paris. And they claim that Google and specifically YouTube, their subsidiary, violated the Anti-Terrorism Act by aiding and abetting ISIS. So specifically, they claim that YouTube's recommendation algorithm promoted ISIS recruitment videos to individuals that may not have otherwise been actively searching for them. And that was aiding and abetting this terrorist organization. Um, so they argue that YouTube's recommendations actually constitute the company's own speech, which would fall outside of the bounds of Section 230. Basically, Section 230 protects you as a content provider, website, whatever platform from the stuff your users provide. But it doesn't protect you if you are the one generating illegal content. 
And so they're saying yeah, that this by recommending the, it. Yeah, it's the very, this is the interesting part, right? I mean, e even if they are doing partial moderation and complain, we just hadn't found this yet. The, the, you know, their algorithms are auto promoting certain things. And I think we've all found from all these platforms, they auto promote the most polarized things. It's either th something you really that gets you upset or makes you really happy. And I would suggest these sort of platform bubbles are also leading to the polarization of many groups around the world. So it's it, it, like, obviously YouTube isn't trying to, like if some person were making a choice, they probably wouldn't promote this ISIS video. But I think we're seeing the effect of how the, the, the way these algorithms promote things that are getting attention often promote really negative things. So it's a, this, this is a very interesting case to see yeah. where it will and fall. So as of the time of us recording this, it was just, I think, last week uh, that the, or maybe two weeks ago now, that the both the plaintiff's attorneys and the defendant's attorneys made their arguments to the Supreme Court about why they think or think not that this case should affect Section 230. And the plaintiff's attorney actually made some interesting arguments. So one of the things they said was YouTube's creation of a thumbnail showing the video that's uh, going to appear next should be considered a joint creation by YouTube and the third party, in this case, ISIS, that posted the video. Basically, ISIS didn't make that thumbnail. YouTube did. That's new content that they are now promoting with their algorithm. So should they be protected with Section 230? It's, I mean... By the way, that, that's interesting because there's an algorithm there too, right? Like you you can actually specifically pick your thumbnail, but if you've ever been a YouTube uploader, it picks three. And I'm not sure if it just randomly picks three or if it does some algorithm processing to find if something interesting Corey's in this video to make it. It specifically finds the one where like your mouth is like, uh, open. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... And so, I mean, I'll get to my thoughts on this in a second, but this is a really interesting argument that like, at least at a high level, feels like it has a bit of merit. Like the whole point of Section 230 is you can moderate or not moderate content. And as long as you take care of stuff that is pointed out to you as being illegal, you're safe. But what happens when you are promoting content, even if it is through a an algorithm where it's not like a human going in there and doing things. It's a computer program. Like it's a, it's a very interesting argument and I can see why it at least made it to the, uh, the Supreme court. Um, that said, like the potential consequences of this, if it were to, like if the Supreme court were to side with the Gonzalez side of it could potentially be pretty devastating. Like the reality is like recommendation algorithms are used everywhere. YouTube, your search engine, Yelp, uh, other websites you use, all social media is all based off of algorithms. And so suddenly would none of them be protected by Section 230? Uh, you'll notice that, or if you've been following it, um, almost every single like major technology or social media company uh, provide their own third-party brief to the Supreme Court. What is it, like a amicus brief or something like that? Basically, they're not <laughs> party to the case, but they're saying... Like, they're they giving an opinion say, as a... Exactly. Yeah. That's someone affected um, and by the room. Reddit pointed out a really interesting situation where like their moderation and their recommendations are entirely user fueled. Like recommendations come in the form of upvotes yeah, yeah. or downvotes by users and moderation is all just moderated by private individuals for subreddits. Yeah. 
are they in that case it's 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 not you yeah yeah i mean the big thing is you can't be liable for your user's content and yeah reddit by design and and why can't i think dig is would be in the same bucket there is no algorithm it's all actual users contributing to what gets seen too yeah so like if you accidentally or i guess intentionally upload upvote what like ends up being illegal content could you now be held liable for that as recommending it to other users like it's a really this is absolutely a slippery slope kind of argument, but it is a pretty dang slippery slope, at least in that context. Um, and the reality is like Section 230, it doesn't just allow people, everyone in the world to post whatever the heck they want on websites. Like they are still subject to laws around like libel and copyright and anti-terrorism laws where you as the user, if you upload this, absolutely can be taken to court over it, both criminal and civil. It just protects the platforms themselves uh, from users sharing this content on it. So interestingly, like the Supreme Court might not actually make a ruling on this one too. Like they're hearing the arguments. Well, I mean, they're going to make a ruling, but they may not make like a, you know, let's annihilate Section 230 or let's uphold it. It sounds like they're actually leaning towards basically saying we are a bunch of old people that don't understand the internet. We're not the ones best equipped to make such a big decision. They want to. Kick I, I would also to say they're being smart about the three branches of the U.S. government. In that rule, this is a law that was a passed by Congress. Only Congress can legislate. That's the whole point of the legislature branch. So I think the Supreme Court gives an, an opinion on the case. And if the opinion goes against what's currently in the bill, uh, that's a a big deal but they can't actually make a law. So I think by definition, after giving an opinion, if it is different than the current law, the whole point is here's what the Supreme Court says, Congress, go do your job. Now, can Congress actually do their job? <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but I, I think that's really all they can do. They can't, you know, they don't necessarily redefine law. And do we well, trust I guess they do in some ways politicalized Congress right now yeah, to address Congress. a sensitive technical issue like this that has far-reaching right, ramifications. Let's, let's not even talk about the hyper-political judicial too. So it's it's uh, we're 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 all over the place in all of our I guess only the execute the executive branch is the only place that's one or the other. Yeah, the no, it, it's going like, to be a hard one. We're we're in a spot like by the time you're listening to this, the ruling may already be out, but there's a potential for a fairly drastic change to just how things work on the internet coming up. This is a weird one, though, because I, I agree with you that this is actually a pretty interest. They do have a case. The plaintiff uh, does have some some merit, in my opinion. But, you know, I actually heard me uh, unrelated, but I think ISPs should be utilities. I, 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 I And I think some of these platforms are getting to the level where they're not ISPs, but they're such huge platforms that they have to have some regulation. Yeah, that, that maybe not fully utilities, but they should be heavily regulated. But this is a weird one. I also do think they need to be deserve. They do deserve to be protected from some liability by their users. Uh, at the end of the day, they're providing. I, I mean, most of these platforms are designed to be places where we come congregate as the people in society and talk about things. And while I'm not for hate speech, and I think there should be strong laws and bans against hate speech and crimes. We, we do come from a First Amendment country with free speech and a dumbass user saying a really bad thing on the place like Reddit 
is not necessarily Reddit's fault. And yet, you know, part of our country is to allow dumbasses to say bad things and hopefully most of society ignores them and tells them that's that's kind of stupid. So it, it, I'm a mix there. At the same time, I really am losing love for these algorithms. These algorithms were not created the, the way they are with any malice in my personal opinion. In fact, I think most of them are like marketing. They're they're base to get our eyes on them and it's human it's our human nature and society's fault for the fact that we either want to look at the worst car crash or the best happiest cute cat in the world it's it's one or the other with our our dumb snake brains uh, you know or at least the lizard Speak part of for our yourself, brain man oh so you don't love cute kitties and and big car crashes no i've you got just a, like a gr smart, random gray things <laughs> smart sake snake brain here Man, oh. <laughs> whatever. You, you like very nuanced conversations that go into every little detail in the middle rather than just everything sucks or everything's great. Anyways, exactly. it's, I, the, the algorithms, I think, have a very big negative implication on society, even though they weren't created in malice. They were created for marketing and they're created to really feed us more of what we're showing them we want. So, uh, but there's so many, so... And in one sense, I wouldn't mind if maybe a change to 230 doesn't remove some of the protection against liability for users, but maybe requires these algorithms to, to do something and be part of the best effort of moderation. Or, yeah, yeah, of, of moderating I, I users' posts and moderating content. I can dig that. Because like, the thing I'm concerned about is if it were to just completely null and void Section 230. Because then the internet yeah. we turn to then is one where you either have to moderate everything, which is it's not Big Brother, yeah, or yeah. you have to moderate nothing, and then all these social media places become even more of a cesspool than they are. Toxic. They are. I mean, they are already yeah. toxic as heck, but they imagine no bars, <laughs> exactly, yeah, no I barriers. Mean, we can just look that at the crazy. Uh, the experiment that is Twitter 2.0 to see how well that would be going. But either way, like. By the time you listen to this, there may already be a ruling. Otherwise, it is expected to come relatively soon after this. And I know I will at least be eagerly awaiting to see what the determination is. And even if it's just a simple Congress figure a crap out, I think that's probably the best case scenario for this one. But there could be something significantly more uh, disruptive coming down the pipeline for the Internet that we know and love. Man, doom and gloom. Or happiness. Who knows? But maybe we should stop allowing ISIS videos. I think on humanity YouTube. always ends up one day. Yeah, that is kind of yeah. You say that, Corey, but I feel like we've been proven time and time again that that's wrong. We'll see. <laughs> We're still here. We haven't killed ourselves. And uh, I, the slide Harry I show to convince myself is whether or not technology will kill us or save us. In the past three years, life expectancy has gone up. 50 we we you know we used to die in our 40s even 300 years ago and now we die in our 80s on average and we complain about how horrible everything is and inflation but i can get pretty much anything from around the world in a grocery store so i think a lot of us are focused on the bad stuff that happens in our little bubble of time and we forget what it was like living in the us in the 70s 
I don't know what it was these... like living in the U.S. in the 70s, Corey. Oh, shut up. Okay. Old as dirt. <laughs> as, as I said in a, a last week's podcast. <laughs> yeah. it's well, what, were, what was the South Park? The nostalgies or whatever? I, I, I think sometimes the nostalgies are a little more rosy in our brain than they were in reality. I personally don't want to go back to the 50s or 70s or any time early. Other, if I, if I could go back in a time machine to visit just for fun and come home, that'd be cool. But uh, if I went anywhere in time, it would probably be forward. That's fair. I'm going to continue my life of just living it as a cynic and being safe. That way. Oh, I, I will still be a cynic. Everyone knows me as a cynic. I say the worst things, but I think some of the, the grumpiest cynics are actually internal optimists that wish it were another way. And that's the way they act. That's why they act so grumpy about certain things in life. Fair. Well, I guess we shall see in probably just a few weeks' time, at least yeah. on this topic. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter if it happens to be one of the days where it's actually usable. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at I don't know, Mark. After the change to Section 230, Twitter might go away. That's a very good point. Maybe you can't reach out to us at all. We'll figure out what the ruling is. Hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening and you will hear from us next week.